So Samuel appointed Saul, and it starts off well. Israel, under the leadership of of Saul, defeats the Amorites, and Jonathan defeats a group of Philistines in a small skirmish. And the Bible says that after Israel defeated the Amorites, Saul recklessly declared war against the Philistines, who were as numerous as the sand. Now Saul's soldiers knew they were outnumbered, and they quaked with fear. Saul's pride and arrogance in going to battle against a superior enemy without seeking the Lord's will led to additional disobedience. Saul's soldiers began to scatter and leave the battlefield and return home, as it says in 1 Samuel 13:15. Only 600 men were left with Saul. Unwilling to wait for the prophet Samuel, King Saul foolishly offered a sacrifice. Instead of divine blessing, Samuel, who arrived just after Saul finished the offering, rebuked Saul, saying, You have not kept the command of the Lord. Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Israel's army retreated to the caves caves of Gibeah. While Saul's army was hiding, the Philistines raided the neighboring villages, confiscating all weapons. So when we come to chapter 14, the Bible says that only two swords remain among Saul's troops. Only Saul and Samuel had a, had a sword. The rest of the army had resorted to using farm tools for weapons. A hopeless situation for Saul's army. Two swords and farm implements against an enemy as numerous as the sand. So now we come to today's reading, 1 Samuel 14, 4 to 16, and it will be on the screen. This is a reading. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Boses and the other Sene. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all things you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come. On, then we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we will teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer followed, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. 
That's the reading. I'm going to call this talk Victory Over Impossible Odds. Victory Over Impossible Odds. You see, in this account, there was one man, Jonathan, Saul's son, who did not quake with fear, but trusted in the Lord. In this impossible and discouraging situation, Jonathan made a a choice to search for God. The Bible says, one day Jonathan says, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I'm just going to pause there for a moment. Because what Jonathan says is so important for each of us on our own journey with God. When we are looking at impossible odds, when we need to make changes into our lives, when we become sick with life-threatening illness, what do we do? Do we do as the Israelite army did, recoil with fear into a cave? Or start trusting in a loving God who can deliver us from the pit of despair? Change begins and hope comes when we realize, like Jonathan, that God does not dwell in the caves of despair and fear. God is on the mountaintop. That is why the psalmist wrote, I lift my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Jonathan realized that the Lord was not in the caves of Gibeah, where his father had set up camp. He needed to go where God was working. We must also realize that staying put and doing nothing is not an option. We must be willing to go, look and search for God's guidance in situations we find ourselves in. What we see here is that Jonathan is proactive, not reactive. He is not prepared to stay put and wallow in self-pity like the rest of the Israelites. He seeks the Lord. You know, throughout the Bible, we find God calling his followers to go. God told Abraham to go to a new land. God called Moses to go back to Egypt and then go take his people out of Egypt to the promised land. God told Joshua to be brave and courageous because he was to lead the people into a land they had never been before. We find the same go principle in the final instructions given by Jesus who promised to be with us always when we go into the world to make disciples. As believers, we must seek the Lord where he can be found. The Bible promises in John 5, uh, John 5 15, 20 that God is always working but we must be willing to go in order to participate with his plans and purposes for each of our lives. The lesson for us all is that we must be prepared to be proactive with God and not expect things to somehow miraculously happen without us having to play our part. Although that does not happen sometimes, although that does happen sometimes, God wants us to partner with him. So I just want to give you a short testimony at this point, just to emphasize this point I've made that, you know, we are to partner with God and we can't expect him just to 
wave his magic wand and things happen. About three and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with gallbladder problems. And anybody who's had gallbladder problems, they know how painful it can be. And I didn't have private medical insurance, so I had to wait quite a few months before surgery was to take place to remove my gallbladder. And in the intervening time between that first diagnosis and my operation, my condition got a lot worse. And then in prayer one day, and very, very clearly, I felt God say to me, a surgeon's knife is never going to cut you. Now, that is amazing because I had to have my gallbladder out. And my situation continued to get worse. So much say that one day my wife said to me, I don't like the look of you. And I thought to myself, that's nice. We've been married 40 odd years and now she's decided she doesn't like the look of me. But actually what she was saying is that I had turned a very yellow colour and become very jaundiced. Went to the doctor the following day and she said exactly the same thing. I don't like the look of you. And I had an emergency blood test and the very next day I was at work. She phoned me up and said, where are you? I said, I'm at work. She said, well, you're not to stay at work. You've got to get in hospital straight away. I've arranged for a bed for you. It's serious. Your liver is packing up. So into hospital I went. And there I had an MRI scan. And they discovered that some of the stones had got stuck in my bile duct. I didn't realise at the time, but apparently the bile duct is important for uh, the working of the liver. Um, and it was completely blocked. Now, as it ha- is, they, they couldn't do anything over here. Um, the operation was not possible over here, so I was sent to Portsmouth to have the stones removed. Now, amazingly, the stones were not removed by cutting me open. The stones were removed by going through my throat. I don't know if they sucked them out or whatever, but they, they were removed. I was not cut. A miracle, I thought. God is good. But that's not the end of it. You see, when I got back, I had to go to my surgeon, the surgeon over here. And my surgeon over here said, you've still got stones in your bile duct. We still want to do the operation on you. And I remembered what God said to me. He said, you're not going to be cut. So I said, no, I'm not having the operation. And he then went on to all kinds of things. In fact, he he gave me all the possible things that could go wrong, even to the point of death. And his final words were to me, he said, you will be back. You will have that bile duct. You will have that uh, thing out. But you know, this is what I'm trying to say to you. We have to partner with God. I went home and instead of just sitting back and saying, well, God, you told me that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be cut or whatever, I actually did something about it. I looked on the internet for a way to have stones removed without surgery. And I found uh, a doctor in America who said that he'd never had a patient who'd ever had to have his gallbladder out because he had this remedy. 
and it was a natural remedy. It wasn't using drugs or anything. It was completely natural. So I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I did this. I took this uh, recipe that he gave me and I did it. Absolutely awful, vile. It included drinking a pint of olive oil and six times the amount of Epsom salts you're meant to have. But I tell you, I had to be by the toilet for about three or four hours. But it cleared them. And to this day, I have had no problem with my gallbladder. Now, you see, that's because I trusted in God and said, he said to me, you'll not be cut, and I had to trust in what he said. And, and also, you have to yourself do something about it. You're not meant to just sit back and say. You know, there are many people in this church, I think, who's had amazing prophecies over them. You're meant to walk in those prophecies when you get them, if you believe they're right. For instance, if, if a prophecy is that you're going to go to another country, then you should start looking at the, the country, get a book about it, find what happens there. Maybe start learning the language. When you do that, God says, they're interested, they're prepared to do it. And then he will do it for you. But if you sit back and do nothing, nothing will happen. Okay, let's move on. So what we have to do is that we must be proactive with God. So, you know, searching for God can be difficult at times. But we don't have to do it alone. If you notice in this story, woven into the fabric is the importance of friends and people we can trust who have the same desire as us. During COVID, when we were not allowed to meet up with friends and family, I readily admit I didn't deal with the situation very well. I've never in my life suffered with depression or anxiety, but I found myself often anxious and having mild panic attacks. The reason was isolation from friends. You see, I am a people person. I'm very tactile, and I love to hug friends. Hugging trees did not do it for me. Friends are so important, and nearly all my friends are Christian. We believe in the same thing. I'm very, very fortunate to lead a life group that I consider all of them to be friends. We do life together, and we share our joys and disappointments with each other. I also miss church, all of you, as I consider you part of my family. I love to hear stories and testimonies of what God is doing in people's lives. And I came to realize how important that was to keep me focused and on track with my own journey with God. You see, friends are so important and often the company we keep determines success or failure. If we want to keep on track and focused on God, we need to align ourselves with godly people. Now, Jonathan had a man who shared his belief. One man in the camp camp who recognized true courage, godly leadership, and faith in the Lord. I love the words spoken by Jonathan's armor bearer. I am with you, heart and soul. You know, we all need friends like this. 
Friends who build us up, not tear us down. Friends who inspire us with confidence, not criticism. Friends who encourage us to be bold in our faith and not discourage us in taking risks. Friends who support us, heart and soul. Not those so-called friends who at first sign of trouble abandon us never to be seen again. Jonathan was surrounded with people with excuses. They had legitimate reasons for staying stuck in a cave of defeat and despair. The Philistines are too strong. We are out of weapons. We are just following orders from the king, was their cry. No one can deny that these men faced enormous challenges. But we serve a God who does the impossible. To experience the power of God, we must sever ties with those who prefer to hide in caves and join heart and soul with those who are prepared to climb mountains for the glory of God. These are the people we need to align ourselves with. Jonathan did not just want to escape the caves of Gilbia. He wanted victory over the enemy. He believed in a God that all things are possible. Defeat was never an option. So Jonathan climbed. Here again, we must pause and just reflect on what Jonathan did. He did the unthinkable to accomplish the impossible. You know, the problem with so many of us as Christians is not that we fall short of where God wants us to be, but we have quit striving to reach God's plans for our lives. Jonathan climbed... Jonathan's climb up that mountain paints a powerful picture of victory being available to those who are willing to move to a higher level of faith. Those who are willing to leave the comfort zone. Those who are willing to risk being different from the crowd. And those who embrace the call of God upon their life. Victory, as we know, is ultimately accomplished by God. Jonathan understood that. But he also understood that he had a role to play in the defeat of the Philistines. We take risks when God calls us to take risks, but we must not do it in our own strength. You know, when Peter walked on water, he stepped out of the boat only after Jesus commanded him to come out on the water. Jonathan climbs up the mountain to fight with confidence only when he has received confirmation from God. Both Jonathan and Peter knew the call of God because they had spent time listening to his voice, a particularly important lesson to us. We must take time to be in God's presence and to hear God's voice and know with certainty when he is calling us. Also, victory rarely comes spontaneously. It usually comes after significant preparation, determination and planning. Unfortunately, not many people will pay the price for victory. But the sadness is that the price of failure is often far greater. Defeat, discouragement and missed opportunities are incredible costs compared to the resolve to climb. We were created to climb higher run faster and fly farther by the power and purpose of God. Jeremiah said that God's plans are to prosper and not to harm us and to give us hope and a future. Climbing is a matter of attitude, not of age, academic accomplishment or other circumstances. Do not believe for one moment that you are too old or you do not have the required skills. 
If God calls you, he will give you all the tools required to accomplish the task. We are called to be followers of Christ who look to the mountains, set our minds on things above, not on things below. Victory is not for the tame and timid. It is for those who keep their eyes fixed on Jesus and walk to where he wants us to go. Yet Christianity, over the past 2,000 years, has moved from a, uh, from a people of the early church who were men and women of action who changed the world to people who come to church to listen and mostly inactive and do not put into practice what they hear. Like the soldiers of Saul's army, our tendency is to retreat in the face of enemy threats and difficult trials. Instead of dank caves, we so often hide behind out-of-date traditions that choke the passion and vitality that we all should have. As the Apostle Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3.5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know, when there is no power in our churches, when we have stopped believing that God can do all things, then Christianity becomes another world religion that will keep us in the caves with everyone else. Let us not forget what Jesus did for each one of us on the cross. Let us not get complacent. Perhaps the tragedy of our time is that most of us who declare Jesus as Lord have become too comfortable with our possessions and lifestyle. We have lost the passion and power of raw faith that we once had. Do you know something? This small church at St. Matthew's can change the world if we are prepared to partner with God. I'm sure we all have family and friends who are not walking with Jesus, who we want to see saved. And that will happen only if we believe and keep praying persistently, never ever giving up. I also believe that God has great plans for our church here at St. Matthew's. Plans above our wildest dreams and imagination. Those who know me well will know that my passion is to see revival in this island. I do not want to see any further churches sold off and turned into flats. I want to see churches built because people are flocking to churches in the hundreds of thousands. Is that possible? Of course it is, if we only believe and have faith. If two old ladies by prayer can be the catalyst for revival in the Hebridean Islands, what do you think a hundred plus Christians can do if we just have the faith, passion and resolve to pray for revival in this island? And when revival comes to these islands, not if, we are strategically placed to move into France and to Europe. We must allow God to expand our minds because all things are possible through him. So let us not be a church that looks down in the pit of mediocrity, but let us look to the mountain. God is on the mountain. He is inviting us to meet him there. So let's be a people who climb. Amen. Let's stand. Yeah, Heavenly Father, as I was preparing this talk, I just sense very much your desire for us to be a people of passion, to really step into the things that you have for us. 
I'm just going to share another thing uh, that I, I had quite a few years ago now, but it was, it was a dream I had, and it wasn't, an, it wasn't a pleasant dream, but it's worth sharing it with you. I'd gone up to heaven, and there was a big queue waiting to get in. And I was at the end of the queue, and I could see Peter at the front, letting people in one at a time. And everybody who came gave him a sheet of paper. I didn't have a clue what it was all about. But as I got to within three places before the front, I realized that the piece of paper Peter was reading out was all that they have done for the Lord in their life. And I was ashamed because when it came to me, I only had a tiny piece of paper. There was not much on it. And it was like God was saying to me, you know, when I speak to you, when I tell you things, you must act on it. And I think that could be true for many people here. You know, we need to act on what God is calling us to do. He has plans and purpose for each and every life in this, in this building. And as a church, you know, he has great plans for us. You know, Phil, over the last couple of weeks or three or four weeks, has been bringing up the new center. And I am passionate about the new center because God, called, God spoke to me about that many years ago before Phil even came on the scene. And how long has he been here? A long, long time. But I've never, ever forgotten it. I've never given up that this is going to happen. And you know, it's for a purpose. It's for a reason. It's not just so that we can be a bigger church or something. It's for a reason that this building has to be built. And I tell you what, I am 110% behind Phil all the way. I know he's the leader and he takes the responsibility for it. And I can understand him feeling a bit squeamish and a bit, you know... It's a lot of money to raise. But if we believe in God, he can do it. And what I would like is for every one of us to be behind him as we go forward with this plan. Because as I said, I believe that God has amazing plans and purposes, not just for us as people, but for this church. But we've got to be prepared to be brave and courageous. We've got to be prepared to step forward. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the way that you speak to us. I thank you, Father, for your guidance in our lives. I pray for every single person here that you would inspire them by your spirit. Father, it won't just become a case of coming to church on Sunday or just going to home group, but it will be a case of wanting or desiring you every minute of every day. And I thank you, Father, that you do speak to us. As we pray to you, you speak into our lives. And may we be people not just only listen, but we act on what you say to us. That we partner with you in every sense.
Father, I just pray your, your blessing on this church. I just pray, Father, that you would keep, continue to inspire us, ignite us. And that, Father, that we would see your glory shine. That, Father, we would be a people who would see the banner of Jesus over this island. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. Thank you. So I'm just going to do another prayer of blessing to you all as we leave this place. So, Father, I just thank you for every person here. I thank you, Father, that uh, you are with us every single day of every week, every year. I pray, Father, for your blessing on us now as we go to our homes. And I pray, Father, that you will continue to ignite us. You will continue to inspire us by your presence. And that each and every day we will know you more and worship you more. Because you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy, Lord. We praise your name. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you next week.